This is KDLL, 91.9 FM, Kenai, Soldatna. Listener-supported public radio for the central Kenai Peninsula. You're tuned in to the Kenai Conversation. I'm Hunter Morrison. Today, we are joined over the phone by environmental scientist Ben Meyer, who gave a presentation on November 1st for the Kenai Watershed Forum's Fireside Chat series at Kenai River Brewing Company. The presentation, which was given alongside Trout Unlimited Alaska's Alexa Millward, highlights their joint efforts in mapping anadromous streams and rivers across the central Kenai Peninsula. We are also joined over the phone by Dave Atchison, Special Projects Associate for Trout Unlimited Alaska, and Kenai Watershed Forum's Sarah Amat, who helped organize the Fireside Chat series. After this interview, stay tuned for Meyer and Millward's Fireside Chat presentation. All right, so I guess let's let's hop into it. You know, um, for those out there who don't know, um, I'll throw this question to to Ben first. Tell me about the Kenai Watershed Forum. Sure, Kenai Watershed Forum. We are a nonprofit. I think we have seven or eight full-time folks working with us at the moment, and we've been around since 1997. Our tagline is research, restoration, and education. So we have people that specialize in all of those things. We run summer camps in the summer uh, for kids. We run a big volunteer program called Streamwatch. We do monitoring of invasive species, and I do things related to water quality and aquatic habitat all throughout the Kenai Peninsula. Okay, great. And throwing this next question to Dave, you know, briefly tell me about Trout Unlimited. Sure, Trout Unlimited is a national organization with chapters all over the country. So there's a um, Trout Unlimited Alaska is offshoot of the national group and there's employees here. There's um, one, two in the Matsu, three or four employees in Anchorage, two of us here on the Kenai Peninsula, and I think four people in Southeast. And we work to protect cold water fisheries. There's also the local chapter, which is semi-autonomous. They have their own board and can make their own decisions about different things. But um, all in all, we're protect cold water fisheries and protect habitat, um, do a lot of restoration work in the lower 48, and we're beginning to do some up here um, so, yeah, really interested in fisheries and habitat. And Sarah, I'll, I'll throw this question to you. You know, tell me about the Kenai Watershed Forum's Fireside Chats. Yeah, so our Fireside Chats have actually been going on for years before I got in here. I got here a year and a half ago. Um, but from my understanding, the attendance wasn't always what we would hope it would be. So when I got here last summer and fall came around, Fireside Chats was coming up and I was trying to figure out with my coworker Brandon how to revamp this um, educational slash recreational speaker series that we have. And Fireside Chats at, at Kenai River Brewery is what we came up with and it's turned out to be a very successful event for us. So basically we invite local experts or people that are just really passionate about what they do, have good information to share, to come out to the brewery and speak to a group of community members um, about whatever topic they can come up with. 
And I guess in your own words, kind of tell me about the inspiration behind growing this um, event. Yeah, so we um, at the Kenai Watershed, we really appreciate the community that we're a part of and the place we get to work. So Fireside Chats is a way to bring those things together. We want to um, embrace our um, peninsula and the watershed we work in and share information that could be useful. And to bring the community into that, there's lots of topics that we can bring and present in a way that they'd understand in a very casual way um, that people are very interested in. And Fireside Chats is where we get to do that. Yeah, so that was the goal. Cool. And, you know, in years past, was it held at Kenai River Brewing? Um, so last year it was held at Kenai River Brewing. And the year before that, I think they had one one of the fireside chats held at the brewery. Um, and that one, from my understanding, was the most well-attended one, which is why we wanted to continue doing that. And Doug over at the brewery is who we've worked very closely with, and he's been great. And so the rest of their staff welcoming us to host our event there every Wednesday in the fall. So we're very grateful to have that partnership with them. And Ben, this question's for you. You know, how was giving a presentation at a brewery? What was that experience like? I really enjoyed it. Yeah, i really privileged to get to work right next door to Kenai River Brewing. And it was the first day of November. I think it was maybe 30 degrees or so. Uh, but we still had a great audience. If you really kind of crowd in next to where the outdoor fires are there you can get some heat but people around here tend to know how to stay warm when it's cold anyways we had what maybe 40 or so folks there 48 people at, at conservation conversations we had 48 people at the talk that alexa and i gave um and the part i like best is that we had a lot of great questions at the end of it which tells me people were really paying attention and um wanted to learn more about this even beyond the talk Okay, cool. And, you know, Ben and Alexa's presentation talked about um, their research for finding anadromous uh, streams and rivers throughout the central Kenai Peninsula. Um, but Sarah, tell me about some of the other uh, fireside chat lineups um, from this past year. Yeah, so we actually, we had a great lineup this year. Um, we had, it started off with mites, with uh, aquatic mites, which was given by David Wharton, one of the KWF board members. And he actually came to me and had this presentation already lined up and wanted to present. So he was the easiest one to come up with. Um, the other ones, we work very closely and we've had some of our former staff and interns go over and work at the refuge. And one of our former technicians, Nathan um, Davis, was over working at the refuge this summer and he worked with both Matt Bowser and Don Watts. So those projects that he worked on, he brought to me and said that he thought they might be interesting. And that was the Northern Pike and Elodia invasive species with Matt Bowser and the Mountain Goat Research with Don Watts. So those were two other ones that our, our internal connections at the Watershed Forum um, led to those. The other two, um, Bonnie is one of our staff members. She I actually witnessed one of her presentations earlier in the year and I thought it'd be perfect to present to other community members because um, they didn't have access to it in the conference that I attended. And then Larry's on the radio and everyone has good things to say about Larry the gardener. So he was another one that I was looking forward to just getting 
in that atmosphere and opening up the floor to him. Now, are are you in charge of, you know, choosing the guest or is it kind of like a group collaborative effort? It's definitely a group effort. Um, I work with the other staff here at the Watershed Forum to see what connections they might have. Um, so that's been very, very helpful. All the topics that we have presented on at Fireside Chats each year is on topics that we ourselves want to know more about and find interesting. Um, and that leads to some great presentations because even the scientists at the Watershed Forum don't know that much about the Mountain Goat Research Project at the Refuge and the other things like that. And then we make connections with our partners on the peninsula and around Soldat and Kenai area um, that we get to continue to work with in the future. And Ben, you gave a, a presentation, but you know, how, how else would you say that you helped bring the fireside chats to fruition? I would say Sarah really did all the work to make this event happen. All, all props to, to her for putting on this great event. Um, beforehand, Alexa and I put together this talk and practiced it and tried to think about who our audience is. This is a different audience than what you might find at a science conference or some kind of more technical environment. So I tried to think like, you know, if, if this was me 10 years ago before I was involved with it, with any of this work, where would I start and what would I want to talk about to introduce this to a completely fresh bunch? Um, we are also hoping to present this same talk, uh, maybe at some other future events around South Central Alaska this winter and this next spring. We submitted an abstract to another conference in Anchorage in February called Alaska Forum on the Environment to share the same presentation there. Okay. We'll say Ben did come to me and ask if he could present with Alexa. <laughs> that wasn't the initial plan, but it worked out well. Cool. And this next question I'll throw to Dave since I haven't asked him many questions yet. Um, so, you know, in, in talking about Ben and Alexa's presentation, what would you say is the importance of educating the community about their work? Oh, I think it's very important. Um, there's so few, there's, uh, you know, if you look at the anadromous waters catalog, it affords added protection to uh, a lot of streams. And it's what the borough uses for the 50 clip setback. And so it's a uh, very important um, and getting volunteers, uh, you know, that. I've been involved in Ben's Ben's work and what we partnered with TU, and we've put you know added 17 miles of streams, local streams, very close to where we are to the Anadromous Waters Catalog. So that's huge. But there's so many more that aren't in it, and it's uh, so it's very important work, and and we're looking forward to doing more in the future. And Sarah, same question, you know, what would you say is the importance of educating the community about their work? Well, coming from out of state, I came here and had to figure everything out about what's going on, where I can be involved, um, what projects I can be a part of, even if I'm not necessarily qualified with a degree. So part of Fireside Chats is bringing that information to the community and letting them know that this place they live in is very very special and there's so much you can do here to be a part of either improving or protecting what we have here on the peninsula so i think fireside chats is a great place where people who want to come out and hear things are probably some of the same people that want to go out and be involved 
in helping with projects and helping protect uh, the watershed we live in. And Ben, same, same question, you know, you gave the presentation. So what would you say is the importance of educating the community about you and Alexa's work? The part that I like best about this project is, apart from this presentation, um, which was kind of like a sit down and listen to people talk experience, um, the educational part of it came from hands-on opportunities to be involved. We had over 30 different volunteers contribute over 300 hours of time over the last three summers. And through that work, each of those people got to have an experience of learning about the value of this research by hiking out to some place, putting usually minnow traps in the water to see what kind of fish live there, learning a little bit about how to identify fish and how to get that information on the map, uh, including yourself, uh, Hunter, in September. And so, yeah, through people like um, you and everyone else who wants to continue being involved in this work, we'll be able to um, continue to work with the Department of Fish and Game to improve this map of known fish habitat. And Ben, um, kind of piggybacking off of something you just said, you know, people out there who have, have never heard of your of your research before, what do you hope that they sort of take away from it? The most remarkable thing about this work to me, as Dave mentioned earlier in this conversation, is just how much undocumented salmon habitat there was right under our nose. Within a half an hour drive of our office, we documented over 17 miles of stream, like that's the distance from here to Nikiski, as well as over a thousand acres of lake um, that had not been cataloged previously. This is the case because the way the regulations are set up right now is we presume waters are not anadromous unless somebody goes out there and physically documents anadromous fish to be there. Um, so to me, it's just remarkable like once you start looking for these places that aren't on the map yet, how many of them there are right under our nose. So I would invite people to, you know, next time they see that ditch or that swamp in their backyard to maybe squint at it a little bit harder. And if they're really curious about it, maybe even start looking up some maps or contact organizations like ours or the Department of Fish and Game to ask, is that salmon habitat? Could that be salmon habitat? Is that some kind of other important wildlife habitat? I think it's important to understand and inventory these things so we can decide how to responsibly manage them. And Dave, same question, you know, of the people out there who may have never heard of Ben and Alexa's research, you know, what do you hope that people will take away from it? Well, I think people already, a lot of people around here know how important salmon is to our lifestyle or some to our culture and, and what we do. It's just, it's super important and it's amazing, you know, to, I think people do want to protect it, but it's very interesting. Like, you know, when we've taken people out or like the first time I went out trapping, um, Ben and I are up on very small tributary stream and it hardly even looked like a stream and i said ben i think we should go downstream and set these traps he's like well no let's set them here and sure enough a bunch of little coho were up in what looked like you know hardly a trickle of water so you know it's just you, you don't really know until you go check it out and i think I wasn't, I'm not the only one who's been just amazed at like some of the habitat that holds our fish and that 
you know, that, that's, that creates this great resource we have. And Sarah, you know, same question as sort of an outsider to this project. What do you hope that people who have never heard of this research, what do you hope that they take away from it? I, I guess I hope that people would understand how easy it is to get involved. And it's not an intimidating environment. Um, it's not an 18 mile hike all the time. It's, it's something everyone can do from, I think we had a seven year old this year, um, a seven year old that got to do it all the way to someone who, you know, doesn't, can't do that, that hike up the mountain. They just, they want to go on a walk to a little creek and they can, they can set some traps there. So it's really an opportunity for everyone to get involved and for everyone to learn and experience, um, like Dave said, this research that is so special to our area. Without further ado, here is Ben Meyer and Alexa Millward's November 1st Fireside Chat presentation about their work mapping anadromous streams and rivers across the central Kenai Peninsula. Alrighty, folks. Welcome to our last of the Fireside Chats this season. Uh, thank you all for coming to present today is Alexa Miller from Trout Unlimited Alaska and Ben Meyer from Kenai Watershed Forum. So I will let them take it away. Hi everyone, thanks for coming out tonight. Um, I'm sure many of you, many of you are wondering what is conservation conversations? It's a mouthful. Um, ben and I chose to talk about one project specifically that we've been working on this summer, and that is our salmon habitat mapping. Um, this was my first year getting to be a part of it, and Ben has been a part of this project and working on it for um, the last few summers now. So um, this project is in partnership to the Kenai Peninsula, the Kenai Peninsula Trout Unlimited Chapter and the Kenai Watershed Forum, and it is supported by the Trout Unlimited Embrace the Stream Grant and the um, Alaska Sustainable Salmon Fund Grant as well. Um, so with that, um, another reason why it is called the cons Conservation Conversations is Partly that this project really is a great opportunity for the community to get involved in local research here on the Kenai Peninsula that's happening right in the backyard. And it, I know personally it's been a great way to connect with the community. Um, and so with that, this is why everything you know is wrong about salmon habitat maps on the central Kenai Peninsula. Um, so, as Sarah mentioned, I am Alexa Millard, and I am with Trout Unlimited Alaska. I'm the Kenai Peninsula Engagement Coordinator, and um, also support the local Kenai chapter here. <clears throat> Thanks, Alexa, and I am Benjamin Meyer. I am a scientist with Kenai Watershed Forum, right next door here on the trail through the woods. Alrighty. So, to kick us off tonight, I have a little quiz for you. In the next couple slides, I'm going to be asking, do we think this is salmon habitat? Yeah. Yes. Does there flowing water? It needs to be. It needs to be. You see Katrina sitting off the side of the road. Doesn't really look like a place you would go cast a line or go fish, but there could be fish in there. What about this one? 
Yes. Ooh. I hear some, I hear some yeses. Yeah, Where's the water? <laughs> Lily pads. Yep, yep. And what about this one? No gravel. There is flowing water, but uh, pretty dirty. Not a, not a lot of vegetation. Pretty heavily degraded um, and altered here. So here's what we did at all these locations. Katrina here, we would set these fish traps, and Ben is going to demonstrate one of these uh, minnow traps here. They're a cylinder trap box that has a cone shape on either end that easily let fish pass through, but not easily escape. And so we would leave these out from anywhere from 30 minutes to 24 hours, and we would come back and hope to find these little guys. Can anybody tell me what kind of fish this is? Ooh, I heard something. It is. It is a baby coho salmon. Um, and so we had set these out, hoped to find coho salmon, but we also found several, found several other fish like sticklebacks, uh, sculpin, rainbows, dolly varden, um, and we would stick them in those little, uh, they're called, what are they called again? Uh, a fotarium. That's what it is. So they're lots of fun, and they're lots of fun to take photos with with the baby fish and um, yeah we actually in fact at one point or the other found fish at all three of those locations that I just showed you and it just goes to show that fish are all over um, right in our backyard and places that you would least expect to find them I love to use the analogy that um, Everybody thinks I'm going to compare the Kenai main stem of the Kenai River to a freeway, right? Humans don't necessarily live on the freeway, but we use it to as a mode to travel. And connected to the freeway are the roads that lead you into the neighborhood and everywhere else that we do live. And it's the same with the fish. These fish live in the um, tributaries and the tributaries off of the tributaries all over the peninsula. Um, and part of the reason why we're doing this work um, to provide, to hopefully have some sorts of protection or conservation for these fish so that these, these habitats don't get degraded down the line. And this is a great quote that uh, pairs really nicely with it. The eyes of the eyewitness are so unreliable. Sometimes the eyes, they see what they are meant to see. And because I'm going to butcher the credit for this, Oh, I heard someone say, Detective Hercule Poirot. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. And I just want to highlight, um, thanks to KDLL, um, here's a couple articles that you can go check out and learn more about what we've been up to. Um, one from our season in 2020, and then one from this past season of 2023 as well. Um, so with that, I am going to pass it over to Ben to tell you a little bit more. Thanks so much, Alexa. That was a great introduction. And can we go back one slide, actually? Okay, we spoiled the... We've got a spoiler here. Oh, I think I had the slides backwards. Anyways, um, I just wanted to provide an example of why we're doing the kind of work we're doing. So here we're looking at a map of a local area on the central Kenai Peninsula. Um, over on the far right, the slide we see a map of Anchorage up north and then Kenai down south and then inside that red box 
we see this tributary flowing into the Moose River right near Sterling. So we see a turquoise line kind of flowing in to the Moose River up in the upper left part of the, the screen. That blue water with the pink line through it, that means we already knew that salmon lived there, that this was the Moose River, not surprising. Um, there are fish in the Moose River. It's a big tributary of the Kenai. So when I looked at that map a couple years ago, I saw this tributary flowing into it, and I thought, huh, I bet there's fish in this tributary too. So we walked out to that spot, <clears throat> and we found fish there. Um, but the story got a little bit more complicated. We actually found fish way up here too. So now we're looking at, there's this purple circle, and it's way above where the end of this tributary is. So the turquoise line goes up and then just stops. So that means that this map that we used, it did not even show where all the flowing water on the surface was. Um, we found fish in this spot, like you see down at the bottom of the screen. It was kind of a muddy pit under the lines there. Um, so what this tells me is that we really still have a lot to learn in terms of understanding, even with our best maps and best technologies, where uh, salmon, and especially juvenile salmon, actually live. I think they're a lot more widely distributed than even our best science currently understands. Um, so it's an issue to not have a thorough inventory of where all of our local salmon habitat is. We already saw this picture once. Um, this was a site that was kind of like that spot that I just showed you a map of before. It did not show that there was either flowing water on the surface or that there was salmon habitat there. Um, as a result, it was not considered as part of the process to acquire a construction permit for some work that was going to happen here. It's a much more complicated story, but in short, when we do know that there's salmon habitat on the ground there, and permitters look at those maps as part of the processes that they go through, it's a lot more likely that that habitat can stay intact and people that are doing work nearby can take steps to avoid that this does not happen. When I look at this salmon habitat, I see some place that is going to experience a lot of erosion, some place that doesn't have riparian vegetation covering it, so that's not providing shade, that's not providing bank stability, it's not providing the, the um, insects that fall in to help feed those juvenile salmon that we just saw pictures of. This is generally bad news. Um, reason number two, oh, yeah, so the reason that this happens is right now all rivers, lakes, and streams in Alaska are presumed to be not salmon habitat legally unless somebody like us or you goes and documents it in person. Um, you do not have to be a special biologist with a special degree. You do have to make sure that you're following all the rules if you're going to use this kind of equipment that we used. But anyone can go do this work that we're talking about in this presentation. So right now it's estimated that we've only documented about 50% of what all the actual salmon habitat is in Alaska, which leaves over 20,000 miles out there still to be documented. There's kind of a whole array of organizations and people that do this kind of work that we're talking about. It can be federal agencies, state, state agencies, tribal organizations, nonprofits. Um, there are various people that go out and do this kind of work that we're talking about, and so can you. Um, 
And on this website that I linked to at the bottom, it says basically until these habitats are inventoried, they don't technically exist uh, and will not be protected under state of Alaska law as salmon habitat. So the reason number two it's important to know where all these places are is that it helps us to prioritize where we're going to do restoration projects. So let's say somebody has identified a culvert that's failing and not letting fish swim through or a bridge or something happening. Um, if we don't have a thorough inventory of where fish actually live, it's hard to know like what is upstream of that point that we're going to do a construction project on. Um, I guess I should just ask the question that I wrote here. What's wrong with this picture? I heard all kinds of great answers. So we're looking at a picture of a perched culvert. Um, these are the pipes that go under the road that let fish swim through. And in this case, there's about a, probably about a foot drop from where the water flows out to where the stream continues. So technically, maybe an adult salmon could swim through that, but these small guys that we've been looking at in these projects would have a real hard time trying to swim back and forth, which makes it hard for them to do things like find all the food that they may want to eat, to avoid predators, to find places to hang out for the winter. It's important that these places are transportation corridors also for the babies. Um, okay, so I'll just ask the question that I wrote on this slide too. What's right with this picture? Okay, I heard all kinds of yeah, yeah. I heard all kinds of great answers here, too. We're looking at a picture of that same spot after the culvert had been made fish-friendly. So this more, um, this is more like what the stream was there before the culvert. It more naturally simulates the stream flow, which means that fish are able to swim up and down and go to where they want to go. Um, reason number three that we're doing this work is I think there's a lot of just intrinsic value in having wildlife in our backyard. This is a big part of our culture, our community, our economy. There's a lot of people in this audience and in our community that depend on commercial fishing, subsistence fishing, sport fishing, personal use, subsistence. Um, it's a big part of our life here. So if we like those adult salmon, we need to be thinking just as much about the juveniles too. So I have a whole bunch of pictures of people that have been involved with this work. I think this is just from this, uh, this summer even. Some of you are even in this audience. Um, and we're going to be continuing this work next summer, so I hope that some of you can join us too. Uh, here's kind of a summary slide of some highlights that we've accomplished. Um, and I see Gary raising his hand. Is it OK if we save your question for the end of the presentation? OK. Um, so here's kind of a summary of some things that we've accomplished as part of this project. Uh, we have identified over 16 or 17.6 miles of stream and over a thousand acres of lake mapped um, that was not previously in the state's anadromous waters catalog, which is it is a bit of a mouthful, but that just basically means it's the map of salmon habitat that the state has. Um, and these are all places that are within a half an hour of where we sit right now. Like they're not necessarily places you have to take a helicopter out to. These were all right in our backyard that had not been identified until these last few summers. 
um, to make this happen, we logged over 300 volunteer hours. And I, like I said, I know a lot of you are in this audience. Um, and throughout this work, we captured over 3,000 fish. In fact, I see a picture of one of my favorite volunteers. I think he's in the audience here. Um, and we can see from this graph at the bottom that the number of volunteer hours increased over the three summers that we did this work, which was really satisfying to see. We see that the blue is the field work that we did and the red is the training we did. So we invested a lot more time in training hours in 2021, which was necessary to get this project off the ground. Um, so here we are. We're going to look at some of the results of the work that we did. We're looking at an aerial image, a map of the central Kenai Peninsula. We can see a star where we are currently located here at Kenai River Brewing. Uh, we can see Testamina Lake over here on the right side and the Kenai River flowing through the middle of the map out to the coast over on the left side. Oh, I'm so sorry. I said Testamina Lake. That is definitely Skilak Lake. I was looking at a map of Testamina this afternoon. That's Skilak Lake, of course. Thank you. Thank you. Um, here, now we see some pink colors on this slide. This is a map of the Anadromous Waters Catalog. I think this is from 2022, actually. But basically, this was the map of known salmon habitat before we started this project in our local area within approximately a half an hour drive of where we sit now. So we see that uh, there's a lot of pink colors out there, and they mostly overlap with the main big rivers and lakes that we see in our area. And then on the next slide, we see all these little splotches of color. We see green, orange, and there's one little yellow spot. Um, these are the newly identified salmon habitat streams that we nominated as part of this project. So there's three different colors. There's <laughs> there. There's uh, yellow, which was in 2021. That's a pretty small amount. In 2022, there's a bit more. And in 2023, there was even more. So altogether, that's about 17 miles of stream, which doesn't look like much. But if you add it all up, that's what it was. Um, and then this next map, I've got one more. So now we see all these blue colors. Here we're looking at all of the main surface water areas on the central Kenai Peninsula. So we can see that there's a lot more out there. Um, when we look at all these blue colors, we can see that some of these streams flow for miles and miles up past the stream segments that we nominated. Um, so some of them we really had to walk a fair ways to get to. Um, and yeah, we just stopped walking upstream at some point. <laughs> um, the point of this is that there's more work out there to do. And we're going to be continuing this work next summer. And I'm especially excited to start applying some new technologies with this work, too. We're going to be working with some people that have very specialized experience in making maps that will help us decide where are the most useful places to go to continue doing this work. Um, and I hope it is one of my long-term goals that I hope we can get to the point in the future where we are comfortable using maps that predict where salmon habitat is to help us understand where it is. Because I think that we'll never actually be able to go to all these places. Like if you think of this at a statewide scale, there's tens of thousands of locations like the ones that we went to.
Um, and it would be a superhuman effort from every single citizen to actually go to all these places. So the more that we can understand about what's actually on the ground where we live, the more of an improved job we'll be able to do at predicting where salmon actually live without actually having to go on the ground. Story gets a little complicated from there on, but it's research. Um, and I'm excited to do it. And with that, I'm going to hand it back over to Alexa for any additional thoughts you might have. Thank you, Ben. So I hope you guys enjoyed learning a little bit about the work we've been up to with our salmon habitat mapping. Um, this is just one of many different conservation efforts or way to, ways to get involved in our organizations. Um, so what's ahead for 2024? We will, like Ben said, be continuing this work and we're always looking for volunteers to come out with us. It's a really fun project. Um, it gives, it's an excuse to go walk around in the woods and see if you can't find some baby fish. And um, through the Kenai Peninsula chapter and through Travel Limited Alaska, we also have some events coming up this spring. We'll have a riparian planting day, which will happen this um, spring, the chapter will be hosting their gear swap, getting ready for the fishing season and our um, fly fishing kids camp. Lots of good stuff's ahead. The best way to follow us and to see what we're up to is to follow us on our various social forums or to be on our email list for updates. And I know the Watershed Forum also has some fun other projects to get involved in as well if you're interested. Sure, just to pitch a couple great ways you can get involved with Kenai Watershed Forum too. Um, we host a summer camp every summer for six weeks, and I see both our current and former education specialists sitting over here in the back, so you can ask them about that if you have young people that would like to learn about the kind of work that we're involved with. Um, we host a couple great programs where the public can get involved too. The, one of the most accessible one is called Streamwatch, and uh, you can contact our Streamwatch coordinator, Brandon Drzgowski, to learn more about that. This is a great way to be involved with helping to maintain some of our most popular sport fishing access sites to keep them well maintained and to keep people educated there on uh, how to keep these sites special. Um, yeah, if you have questions just in general about the work that we're doing, we're both pretty accessible, I think, and um, don't hesitate to reach out or just barge into our offices if you ever uh, have the opportunity to. Um, yeah, our contact information is all up here. And uh, do you have any additional thoughts you want to add? Yeah, I could talk a long time about this, but um, you know, it's it's not that cold right now, but it is winter, so I want to make sure we all have the chance to get up and move around. And I know we have some questions too. Um, so yeah, with that, we can go ahead and move on to questions. If you are just tuning in to the Kenai Conversation, you are listening to a presentation about work that is being done to map anadromous streams and rivers across the central Kenai Peninsula. The November 1st presentation at Kenai River Brewing Company was given by Kenai Watershed Forum's Ben Meyer and Trout Unlimited Alaska's Alexa Millward as part of the Watershed Forum's Fireside Chat series. Um. We have time for some additional questions. I see a couple hands raised. And it'll be best if we can hand you the microphone if you have a question. So if you have a question, I'll try to hand you the microphone. Or if you can, go ahead and walk up here. 
So I know we said that we had 17.6 new river miles of uh, identified juvenile salmon habitat. I was wondering if there's any new rivers or tributaries included in that 17.6, or if it's existing uh, rivers and tributaries that we've already found baby salmon in. Thanks, Kevin. In fact, I, I believe you helped uh, identify some of those miles, if I recall. Um, yeah, so these were all streams that were like they're already flowing water on the map and the part that hadn't been identified yet is what lives there so the work that we did was just to go out and put these traps like this in the water um there might even be some places out there where adult salmon live too that haven't been identified yet it's more common that we don't know the places where juvenile salmon live just because adults are easier to spot and more of those places have already been mapped over the years. Um, but yeah, those 17 miles that we nominated um, to the Department of Fish and Game, they were places that are mostly, yeah, streams and tributaries flowing into the Kenai or Kisilof rivers. Does that answer your question? Okay, and I saw a couple other hands raised. I'm gonna see if this microphone cord extends out to Bill here. No? Okay. So Bill's question is, uh, there's a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the question that Bill had is, how do we integrate these findings with the state catalog? Um, I can talk a little bit about that, and then Alex and I actually went through this process about a month or so ago, too. So the process is fairly straightforward. If you find salmon in some place where they haven't been identified before, you go to the Fish and Game website and submit a nomination. And this is basically like, share all the evidence that you have that fish, fish actually live in this spot where you say they live. So we would share the pictures that we took, we would share the coordinates that we recorded, any notes that we took, uh, the time that we put the traps out, the time we put the traps back in, um, any information that we collected while we were doing this field work is what we submit as evidence for this nomination. Um, usually the minimum amount of fish that is required for a nomination is two. So if you only catch one fish, you might want to like do a little bit more thinking about where you're at. It's a little bit harder to use that as evidence that this is definitely a place where salmon live if you catch only one fish there. That's the general standard. Um, there's also a great app that the public can download on your smartphone called the Fish Map app that was developed by another nonprofit in Alaska called the Indigenous Sentinels Network that helps streamline this process. I saw a couple other hands raised. I saw one from Dave. I'll uh, listen to your question and then I'll repeat it here if you, oh, or if you do want to come up here, then we can hand you the microphone. Sure. I'll let Alexa answer the second one, and 
Should I answer the first one? Okay. The first question Dave answered is actually a hard question. Um, the second one has a straightforward answer. Um, uh, the, so the first question that Dave asked is, do we find other fish out there, also other anadromous fish, and can we use those for nominations too? Um, a heelhead, of course, is a rainbow trout that swims out to the sea at some point in their life, and they are particularly hard to tell if it's a steelhead or a rainbow trout when they're a juvenile. In the work that I've done in the last several years doing this, I've only been able to do that with certainty one time. Um, it's possible that there were other steelhead, but the way that you can tell is if you have something that is clearly a rainbow trout, but they also look like a smolt. They're starting to turn all silvery and getting ready to go out to the ocean. And I've only seen that in person once, and I was confident that that was a juvenile uh, that was on its way out, so I called it that and it was submitted as a nomination. Um, so we also find other species though too. We find king salmon, we find, um, I found a few pinks and chums occasionally too. We find other non-anadromous species too like stickleback and sculpin and we identify and log those two. Um, that is a different database that the state maintains also, and we send it there too. And for the second question about blackfish, I'll hand it to Alexa again. We did find a blackfish, but where, we just found the one, right? At least, yeah. We found one blackfish, and it was quite a surprise, and the only reason why I knew about it was because of the great invasive species presentation that was at our science symposium last year, which uh, they brought in a whole phototarium, phototarium of them. So they're really cool fish, but they are invasive, so we don't necessarily want them. Thanks, lots more to talk about that, but um, do I see any other hands raised for these more great questions? I was curious, have you uh, caught any whitefish or, um, what is it? I guess I'll ask about the whitefish, because I think I caught one, actually one, so. That's great. So um, there's someone who caught a whitefish, and you were doing this with a rod, I presume? Caught a whitefish on the lower Kenai. That is really interesting. I've caught whitefish in other systems um, up in northern interior Alaska, but I haven't caught juvenile whitefish on the Kenai before. We're mostly looking in the headwater tributaries kind of way up for this work that we described, so maybe they're hanging out less in those types of places. Um, I would be really interested to know more about that, and if you want to know, like, does this information already exist in the Anadromous Waters Catalog, um, you could Google AWC, Anadromous Waters Catalog, ADF&G for fish and game, and it'll be the very first thing that shows up, and it's a point-and-click interactive map. So you just click on the spot where you're standing, and it will show you what kind of fish have already been identified and documented in that spot. Does that answer your question? I don't know about the particular spot that you found, but I'd be excited to look on the computer and find out. If you see something like this, the most useful thing for we scientists is to take a picture and record the coordinates where you, you're standing. Ideally, more than one picture. Do I see any other questions? Yeah. I know you said that um, sometimes it's really hard to get upstream in some of the tributaries, but I'm wondering, 
Because you see, I see that where you go, part from where you already found them upstream a little ways, is there any way that sometimes you can go to like the headwaters of a tributary? Because it seems like if you found them there, you're pretty sure that they were on the rest of the length of that tributary. Thanks, that is such a great question. So the question was, um, in the work that we did, we worked our way upstream towards the headwaters, but what if you could work your way downstream and then find the, the uppermost point of anatomy and then just identify that? Uh, it took me a year or two to figure out that, that idea, and you figured it out in a half an hour. Um, so that's hopefully what we're going to be doing more of next summer. We'll still have to walk upstream, because that's usually how you get there from the road walking upstream. But I hope that with some of the new maps we'll be working with, they'll be able to predict where are the uppermost points of anatomy, and we can just walk to that point rather than having to try spot A and then spot B and then spot C and then spot C and keep working our way upstream. Does that answer your question? I see a question from Bill again, and he doesn't need the microphone. The question is, is it hard to get permission from private landowners to do these surveys? Um, I've been doing this work for the last few summers. Oh, and Bob is raising his hand, actually, and was involved with helping me do some of this. So I'll hand the microphone to Bob in a second here. And the answer is yes, you do have to get permission for any private lands that you're going to be involved with. Um, I specifically try to go to places sometimes where we don't have to request permission to go to. It just makes the logistics a lot simpler if I know that I'm traversing on public lands to get to a spot. Um, but there are some places, especially out on the Kenai Spur Road, that we might be surveying in future summers where a lot of it is privately owned. And um, I'll hand the microphone over to Bob to tell you about what he did to help with this effort. And I should introduce that Bob is our Vice President of the Kenai Peninsula Chapter of Trout Unlimited, who has helped support this project. Several years ago, when we started this with Embrace a Stream, we were looking at uh, streams that were out in the boondocks. We had to take a helicopter or a float plane or just muck it through the, the swamp area to figure them out. In the upper peninsula beyond uh, Nikiski, I sent out over 30 letters asking permission for the landowners up in that area and had them check, is it okay for us to come on your land to get to a spot to uh, see if there's any salmon or whatever fish we're looking for at that time? And of those over 30 letters, I only got 10 back. One said no, so that left us nine that said yes, we can go on their property. But because it was out in the boondocks, Ben and the crew uh, decided to stay close to where its civilization is, and it's a little bit easier. But I would like to have Ben talk a little bit about a, a special little stream off the Moose River that they found. Thanks so much, Bob. Special stream off the Moose River. I'm trying to think which one this is. There's a couple of them. I think they're all special. Oh, yeah. So there was a slide. Can we go back to that slide? It was like one of the... Yeah, so Bob was um, referring to this um, particular tributary of the Moose River. Um, yeah, 
that one there that wasn't even on the map. We found salmon in a spot where the map did not show there being water on the map. So new things are being discovered every day. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Do I see any other great questions out there? Wow, lots of questions. I'll hand it to this gentleman. How did you access that point? How did you access that point at the top of the moose from where? So in this slide, we're looking at a map of part of the Moose River. Um, if you really look at it, over in the left corner, there's a road going up here. Yep, Alex has got a laser pointer. And then going over to the right, to the east, is a utility corridor. Uh, so we just started walking there. It took about 20 minutes to go from where we parked the car to where that purple circle is. Um, do I see any last questions out there? Yeah, I see one from Trent in the back. Thank you very much, Trent. Um, Trent asked if I could talk for a minute about the permitting requirements for this project so that we don't get anyone in trouble. That's a great idea. Um, this did take some planning and some permits and permission. So there's not a ton, but they are very important to do. So when I first bought these traps, I ordered them through the Sportsman's Warehouse website um, in 2021, and they arrived, shipped to the store. And the guy behind the counter was pretty smart. He said, I don't think you're allowed to use those in Alaska. Are you sure you want to buy those traps? And I said, yes, actually, I have a special permission slip. Um, and this is called an aquatic resource permit. This is something that you can acquire from the Department of Fish and Game. And it essentially is a permission slip that says, I'm doing a research project where I'm going to use special equipment that you don't normally use for fishing. I know that people use these quite commonly in the lower 48 to catch bait fish, especially. Um, but in Alaska, they are not permitted for general use in, in the public. So if you're going to use non-standard fishing equipment, you need something called an aquatic resource permit. Um, or you can just volunteer with a project like ours. Um, the other thing we already talked about is it's important that if you're doing this work that you have permission from the person or organization that owns the land. Um, so some landowners are private citizens, some of them are native corporations, um, some of it's on the Kenai National Wildlife Refuge. Um, in general, some of these entities have very rigorous processes for making sure that they know what kind of activities you're doing on their land. And in some cases, it's like um, you're a citizen, so you are allowed to go do what you need to do. Uh, but yeah, you need to know what the boundaries of the property are in the area that you're working. And that's all for this episode of the Kenai Conversation. Thank you to Ben Meyer, Sarah Amat, Dave Atchison, and Alexa Millward for joining us. You can hear the Kenai Conversation every week on Wednesday at 10 a.m. and Saturday at 5 p.m. here on KDLL. Or you can find it on our website, kdll.org. I'm Hunter Morrison. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.